We can take your Bibles this morning and open up to the Gospel of John. We're still in John chapter 1, but past the prologue and into the beginning of what I think, hopefully for everyone, as you read or if you've been reading along in John or at the beginning of probably close to that if you're in a yearly Bible reading plan. But understanding that John is very precise. He's not going to trick you, as it were, or make you work too hard to understand what he is trying to set out to do. He's going to set out to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God, and he's going to do so in a classic case of, let me present to you witnesses. And so he's going to call his first witness to the stand as we enter into, uh, once we get past this prologue, verse 18, last week, starting in verse 19, the very first witness going to be called is John the Baptist. So let's read together our passage, verse 19 through verse 34. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Therefore they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, well, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them saying, I baptize with Water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. This one is he who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And on the next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is of he whom I said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. I did not know him. But so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have bore witness that this is the Son of God. Father, as we come to your word this morning, as you have prepared our hearts, we do just ask that you would speak through your word this morning. We know that it is through Christ and through him alone in whom the spirit is given as we've even seen in this passage. And may the spirit illuminate our hearts, may the spirit confirm and convict the truths that we see herein as we get to have the privilege of looking at the beginning of the ministry of Christ through the eyes of the very first one who understood this is the Christ, the Messiah. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, last week, if you were here, I mentioned the children's book that we have at our house that we enjoy, and I know some of you have, Full Moon Rising. And that simple children's story was about the moon taking glory from the sun. The moon thought it had its own light. And then the story goes on to say, no. The moon has no natural light of its own. It's simply a reflection of the sun's light. It's ultimately the moon learns its lessons and is humbled and recognizes that he should never take what's not his. He simply reflects the sun and says, don't think it's me. It's the sun. And so I was thinking about this week and thinking about the implications of the way that John's ministry functions, that he simply reflects Christ in so many ways. And then I got to thinking a little bit more about reflecting and so simply defining it as to throw back the heat or light or sound. We've got some, you know, big gym, some echoes. It's reflecting sound, but without absorbing it. And that's a good illustration, I think. A good picture, a good idea as we think about are we reflecting Christ? Are we not absorbing praise but reflecting it back? But really, I thought, so ignore your title, Reflecting Christ. It's really deflecting as I thought about it. 
And by I mean that is we're not someone gives us praise or someone acknowledges something in us. We're not necessarily reflecting it back to them. We're deflecting, as it were, to Christ. So deflecting to Jesus is probably the more appropriate title. And I think that's how we'll think about it this morning is this idea of deflecting glory back to Christ. That is deflecting to cause something to change direction by interposing something or to change direction after hitting it. In other words, they're trying to direct praise to you or say there's something in you that, wow, look at your life. There must be something different about you. And you're going, well, if it is, boom, it's because of Christ and you're deflecting it back to him. And you can't find a better illustration of that ministry of deflecting to Christ than this ministry of John the Baptist. Now, we don't learn everything about John the Baptist in this story, and that's very purposeful, the way that John wants to communicate. Even as we read, what does he emphasize? Verse 30, after me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. This is an emphasis on John's ministry pointing to the deity of Christ. So we don't learn everything, and we'll kind of reference maybe some things in the synoptics and the way and why they thought he was a prophet. We don't hear about his clothing, that he wore camel's hair like a prophet, or that he ate locusts and honey in the wilderness, or that he called for repentance like a prophet. It's not necessarily John's concern. Here, he wants you to see him simply as a witness to the deity of Christ. And the way that he deflects glory back to him. So we're going to see it this way. We're going to look at these four lessons as we walk through this passage this morning from John's witness on how to deflect glory back to Jesus. We're going to see how John does it, and I think we'll be able to see, oh, that's a good pattern that we can follow. All the while, understanding the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle John to write this book to show and demonstrate that Christ is truly the Son of God. Now, John the Baptist is going to be the first of six, seven if you count Jesus himself, eyewitnesses in the Gospel of John. We're going to run into another one here, verse 49, next week, with Nathaniel, who recognizes this is the Son of God. Peter, the blind man who was healed. Martha and Thomas, which is an amazing thing when you understand all that John is working towards about believing his purpose statement in Jesus is the Son of God. And then you have one questioning at the very end who walked with him for all three years. Thomas, I have to see. And then for him to confess, I don't need to see. Because he sees him and he says, I don't need to see your hands and feet. You are the son of God. Clear witnesses to the deity of the identity of who Christ is. But as we look at John's story, the first thing that we're going to see is you have to, to understand this. What it means to deflect the glory back to Christ, the first thing you need to do, the first lesson is to recognize who you are not. Recognize who you are not. Because the thing about John is, and here is even as we look here in a moment where who he is, he may not even have a full understanding of his ministry and his path forward, even as he rejects one of their claims that he is not Elijah. Of course, he is not. There's a sense, as we'll see in a moment, but he definitely has an understanding of who he is not. And if we want to reflect the glory of God back, we want to deflect it to Christ, then we better understand who we are and who we are not. And so look at verse 19. Just to give you kind of a summary, why I look at verse 19 through verse 34 in my mind, it's because of this. In verse 19, it says, this is the witness of John. And then you go to verse 34, and it ends with that same kind of statement that I myself have seen and have born witness that this is the Son of God. And so it does feel like he's taking the stand and he's going, all right, let me give you the witness of John the Baptist. And then he concludes by saying, just so if you missed it, what am I bearing witness to? That this is the Son of God. Very clear, very straightforward, but very, very powerful. But the first thing is he is asked this question by the Jews sent to him by the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Why are they asking him? Because this at least is what we know from the other synoptics, and we just know what's going on here from other passages, that John is massing a gathering. He has followers, even has followers up until the book of Acts who have not yet heard of Jesus or believed in his gospel. And so he has followers, he's amassing them, people are going to the wilderness, and they're getting baptized. And they're wondering, who is exercising spiritual authority in Israel? It's why... Not just any Jews, but the the spiritual leaders, the priests. 
and the Levites, those who handle the things in the temple, are going, what are you doing out here, away from the temple? How do you have authority, as we'll see, is the question they want to know. But first, is there something in you, or are we missing something? And who are you claiming to be? They don't even seem to ask here. Maybe it's simply implied, and that's why his response is the way it is in verse 20, that they want to know. Because there's a high level of expectation for the Messiah. And you can imagine, you walk through your Old Testament, it's 400 years of silence. They're, they're back in the land, but they're still under Roman rule. And maybe every time, and you kind of see through history, we could go through it, but there are a few people that rise up that they think maybe this is the Messiah. And so the implied question is, are you the Messiah? And so he answers in that way in verse 20 that he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. It's a way of wording, emphasizing. And he emphasizes it actually with this, this pronoun that I, and it's emphatic, I am not the Christ. Because that is the biggest question on everyone's mind. You see someone rising up as a leader in Israel, gathering a following. They're going, could this be the one? And he says, this is not me. He understands he is not Christ. He is not the word, the logos, as we saw in the first five verses. He understands he's not the source of the light. He is simply the one that is going to point you back to the light. So he denies that and says, I am not the Christ. He's a puzzle that they can't fit into. But they're not done. Okay, fine. As we understand our scriptures and we're reading, we get to the very last book, at least as it's ordered. It's very likely Ezra and Nehemiah are the last books recorded as far as dates go. But as it's organized, Malachi ends as the last book before you flip to Matthew. And there's a promise in there. Malachi 4, 5, which is what prompts this question of, are you Elijah? Because Matthew, Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come... And strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so, if they know anything, they're going, that's what we're waiting for, is when is Elijah going to come? Maybe this man who's out there as a prophet is Elijah. Come back, because Elijah didn't die, right? He's carried up into heaven. And so they ask, what then are you, Elijah? And he says, I am not. Which at least prompts the question of, if you know the rest of the Gospels, and going, but I thought he is Elijah. Well, let's look at that just for a moment because you have a couple places in Matthew, Matthew 11, where Jesus says himself, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, because this is who John is. John is the last Old Testament prophet. And if you're willing to accept that he's saying John himself is Elijah who was to come. But I think it's helpful if you look at Luke and say in what way, because it's this reality that he is Elijah in a sense, and Elijah not in another sense. And so it says here that he comes in the spirit. It says, Luke 1, verse 17, that he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go up before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and disobedient to the attitudes of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That is the spirit and power which he is going forward in, but he is not Elijah. And I would actually argue, again, some of this is subjective, some of this is, uh, uh, I guess, the guesswork side of what is going on. Some people go and say, well, he's fulfilled Malachi 4.5 because he came in the spirit of Elijah and we're not expecting Elijah. I tend to believe that we're still waiting for Elijah. And part of that, not just Revelation, if he's one of the two witnesses, but there's still an expectation of which he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah but I look back at that promise and I look back at what we see here and their expectation of Elijah, even these verses to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And there is a sense in which that's true with the church. But it's still, if you look at Isaiah, as we'll see with the voice crying in the wilderness, there is a further expectation. And I think that'll be fulfilled in an actual Elijah returning. And it makes sense because we have not seen those fulfillments of all of Israel repenting yet. And so in this real sense, he's obviously not Elijah in any way, come down back from heaven. But he does have, and has came in, the spirit and the power of Elijah. 
another one here, just look at beginning there of Matthew 11, 10 through 13, I think it's helpful as well, that they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, because this is the context here of the transfiguration, where the writer here, John himself, Peter, James, and John go, the three, up the mountain, and they're wondering this question, after Jesus says, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And the first question they ask is fascinating. They why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And this all goes back to understanding that they're not quite there with a first advent, Christ coming for salvation to die for the, his sins, and then coming back a second time. We're not quite understanding that there's two times the Messiah will come. And so Jesus says, and he answers them, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. And there's even not only the humility we see here, but later on if you look at other accounts where John the Baptist questions Jesus and says, do we expect another? Where I don't think he even quite understood how important he was, which makes sense because you see the massive humility here because he understands himself not having any internal greatness, but simply as one who's came as a messenger. He's not pursuing his own life. He's not building his own thing. He knows he's been called to prepare the way for the Messiah. So he's not Elijah. And then secondly, verse 21, he says, they ask the question thirdly, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, then maybe you're the prophet. And what they mean by that is in Deuteronomy 18, the expectation here was that a prophet would come like Moses. So there's just kind of this expectation of perhaps some would view this as the Messiah. Some would keep it separate. But either way, they're kind of waiting because they haven't seen this yet. So maybe you're the prophet that was promised. Yahweh, your God, will raise up. It says Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Raise up for you a prophet like me. That's Moses talking. From among you, from your brothers, you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of Yahweh your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of Yahweh my God, and let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. I want to read this just because you think about that. Whatever they saw, because you can't see God because he is spirit, but what they saw on that mount scared them. And they said, we, we can't be near that. We can't be near God's presence. We need a mediator. There's a recognition. What they don't fully understand, and John is making explicit, is that mediator can't just be another Moses. That mediator has to be fully God and fully man. It has to be God incarnate. Or you're not going to have a relationship with God the Father unless you go through a mediator, God the Son. And so Yahweh actually says to them, if you go on here, they have spoken well. Interesting. They have spoken well. You're right. You you don't want to get close to that mountain because you are sinners and you're going to die. You need a prophet who will be raised up, it says. And so God promises, I will raise up a prophet from among the brothers like you, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. I think that fulfillment is in the person of Christ, the Messiah. And so John's saying, am I that one? Nope. So I'm not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. He's not the one who who they are expecting. I think as you look at John, we have to have a healthy humility If we're going to deflect, praise, honor, glory back to Christ. It's very easy to take credit for natural gifting. You see it in the church all the time. If you're a really good speaker, then you must be gifted to preach. And if you're not a good speaker, then not. Well, hopefully it's okay for average speakers, you know, raise my hand, like the average. And average is okay, hopefully, to be up here leaning on what isn't average, which is the word of God. But whatever gifting you have, whether natural or supernatural, you need to remember it's all a grace of God. If you're an excellent servant, if you're an excellent host, if you're an excellent one who sees needs and is empathetic, well, 
Praise God. Give him the honor and him the glory. Deflect any praise back for those giftings, back to who he is. And understand who you are not. And I think primarily here, who is the Christ, the Messiah? Where you see he is, Jesus, the source. That's what Elijah is saying, I'm not. I am not the source at all. I love 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each one, this is talking about the church, Peter saying, as each one has received a gift, that is the assumption that everyone's been given a grace from God, employ it, serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And the way you serve, and the way I love this is because it's so simplistic, it says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, whoever speaks as one speaking the oracles of God, and whoever serves as the one serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory, might forever and ever. Amen. That is to say, you are going to glorify Christ. You're going to deflect praise to Christ when you exercise, whether it is by doing an action, serving one another, or one who speaks, speaking the things of God. Either way, you're to deflect back to Deflect back to Christ. And really what this says is, not only in 1 Peter chapter 4, but I think the point here with John the Baptist is, he's saying, I'm not that important. And by the way, if John the Baptist is not that important, what does that make me? What does that make each of us? Which we'll come back to that as well. Because as great as he is, this great Old Testament prophet who God is speaking to in a different way than he's speaking to us today through his word. He's actually audibly speaking to him here, telling him what to look for, whose birth is miraculous. If we were to go back and see his miraculous birth, I don't have a miraculous birth story. But he says, no, I understand. I am not the source. I'm simply the one who's going to deflect back to the source, which is Jesus. Well, if that's an understanding, John understands who he's not, and we can go, yep, If that's true of John, it's true of us. We understand we're not those things. We're not the source of truth. We're to point to the source of truth. Then we also have to ask a bit of the question, what are we? So secondly, I think you want to recognize who you are and the way that John recognizes who he is. And the way he describes who he is begins here in verse 22. Therefore, they said to him, they're frustrated. You're frustrating us, John the Baptist. Who are you? So we may give you an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And they're really getting after this question of authority. How can you do what you are doing? Who are you? What's your role in all of this? Well, he says, verse 23, I'm simply a voice. He says, and he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So after all that's said and done, John the Baptist, the greatest here of the Old Testament prophets, he's the one who's going to see the Messiah, which every other prophet was prophesizing towards the Messiah. He's the one who gets to see the Messiah. He says, I'm a voice. Just as Isaiah the prophet said, I'm just a voice. I'm just preparing the way to make straight the way of the Lord. Particularly in his case, verse 31, cheating a little bit, moving down, but it's to say that he might be manifest, that Christ, the Messiah, might be manifest to Israel. He's going to come, call for repentance, and he's going to prepare one way by an outward symbol of repentance, of baptizing with water. But as we know, that's not going to deal with sin, but it's going to point to the one who can deal with the sin of the world, which is going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to flip back to Isaiah 39 for a moment. So go there with me. And I think it'll be helpful just to give us the context of Isaiah 40, verse 3. Because in what way is Isaiah 40, verse 3 calling for this salvation? And I actually think John's picking this up more as really an analogy to say, in the same way as this is true, this is what I'm doing. In the context, you look at verse 39, is that Hezekiah is going to show his treasure room, so the king of Israel, is going to show 
his, or Judea technically, is going to show his treasure room to Babylon. And then we're going to see that Isaiah is going to prophesy this. Verse 4, he asks the question of the Babylons who have come in, Babylonians. What have they seen in your house, Isaiah says. And Hezekiah said, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, this has got to be the gut punch. Hear the words of Yahweh host. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all that your fathers have treasured up to this day, will be carried to Babylon. The guys who just came out and checked out the treasury room, they're going to take it all. Nothing will be left, says Yahweh. And some of your sons, who you will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the place of the kings of Babylon. So now they're going to take all your stuff, all your gold, all your silver, all your treasure, but they're going to take your children. And the royalty of Israel will become simply servants to the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of Yahweh which you have spoken is good. Hezekiah was one of the better kings. For he said, for there will be peace and truth in my days. And then you go, hmm, maybe that was a little bit selfish of him. But he understands this is going to happen. He's not going to stop it. But it doesn't end there. The prophecy doesn't end there. Isaiah doesn't end there. He goes on in verse 40 to give this prophecy that although you're going into captivity, the Lord will not leave you. In fact, his word is true. And this promise to bring you back and to bring you salvation and deliver you is absolute. It's a great passage. We're not going to look at all of it. But just to say, the context of the voice, verse 3, it says, Comfort, comfort, verse 1, my people, says your God. Remember verse 39? Everything's going to be taken from you. Your stuff, your children. You're going to be servants and slaves to Babylon. And the next words are comfort. Well, what's going to comfort you? Comfort is to say, it won't last forever. Speak to her, the heart of Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has been fulfilled, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received from the hand of Yahweh double for all of her sins. Of course, this is punishment for their rebellion. And then in verse 3, you see, what is this context? It's a voice calling. Prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness, which is a massive implication. We've talked before about the Legacy Standard Bible. It's one of the Bibles, a couple that translate your Bible, capital L-O-R-D, Lord, as, as Yahweh. Because sometimes you'll see it all capitalized or lower. And when it's all capitalized, it's the name of the Lord. Which probably the best pronunciation is here, is Yahweh. And what's helpful here is you can see without a translation and understand when he says, I'm preparing the way for the Lord. When John the Baptist says that, he's saying, I am preparing the way for God. And even in that, he is saying, who is Jesus? He's Yahweh. Which is a massive, massive statement of his deity. Prepare the way for Yahweh. In the wilderness, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. The glory of Yahweh will be revealed. All flesh will see together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. What verse 3 is, what, I, what uh, John the Baptist is pulling out of that is saying, I am simply a voice that is preparing the way for salvation. The salvation that will come through the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. And the picture here is, it's going to make way it, a simple path. How are you going to return after captivity? You've got to climb those mountains. You've got to go down those steep valleys, those rough grounds. And, and this picture is, he's taking everything. The valleys he's going to bring up, he's going to bring down. Those crooked roads he's going to make straight. And it's going to go boom. Understand exactly what it is for God to save. And that is what John the Baptist is doing. He's making it clear. He's moving away every hindrance. There, there's no shadows. And he's declaring there is one who has come who is fully God and fully man who can bear your sin. It really is powerful. Even we would go on and verse 41 and the coastlands is, is a word for the, the Gentiles. They're going to be involved, right? Takes the sins not just of Israel but of the world. Just as sure as God is perfect, his promises will come true. So come back to John chapter 1. 
And you see John the Baptist simply saying, I am a voice. Nothing special, but he knows what he's not. And he knows in a humble way what he is. I think Isaiah is toggling between the way he does a near and a future. And not only is this bringing salvation here, but I even think there's going to be a future restoration as we saw in Revelation and the salvation in Romans 11 of all of Israel. John the Baptist is saying he's making a way for salvation in a similar way by making it clear that the one and only way to salvation, to the remission of sin, is Christ. It's a simple mission. Like every preacher and every Christian, that's as simple as it gets. You point back to Christ. There's one preacher who says it this way, that tells a story. Someone came up to him after a message and said, you're the preacher. To which he said, yes. He said, well, you're the one with all the answers. He said, no. But I'm the guy that points to that guy. That's the job. That's the job that John the Baptist understood. There's not much lower than a simple voice. Nobody, nothing of importance he's saying of me, but simply the words I say are what I bring of value. It's a humble, humble reality. The words that will last, the testimony, the witness here that has been immortalized in Scripture, that he was the one who made the way for Israel to see that he might manifest, it says in verse 31, to Israel. He has that humility. And it's a great reminder for us that we're not anything in and of ourselves either. It's that creator creature. Apart from God who made us understanding that, we're going to get everything else wrong. If we think we have purpose in and of ourselves, if we look internally, as the culture always says to do, you won't find much there if you are honest. You have to look outside towards the creator, towards God and understand what he's made us for to glorify him. I always think of that of the pride. Some of you probably have experienced this before in life. The best way I think about it is the athlete who is a good athlete in high school. Maybe you're all state and then you get recruited and you go to college and it's one of the worst tricks because then you're a freshman again and you're a freshman who no one respects. You might have been the fastest kid, and now you're the slowest one. For many, it's humbling. To those who that wasn't a humbling experience, well, good for you. For the rest, most of us, it was a humbling experience. But it can create, for those, that kind of identity crisis. People go to college, and they go, well, who am I? I had an identity. I was popular. I had a social group, and now I don't know what. The only way you're going to find purpose and meaning and clarity is to understand who you are in light of who God has made you. And then, of course, who Christ is and your purpose to give him glory and praise. Deflect it back to him. So like John the Baptist, recognize who you're not. Recognize who you are. Simply a voice. But also, thirdly, recognize true authority. Not everything should be weighted the same. Recognize what is authoritative. And John the Baptist does that. In fact, he doesn't really even answer the question here, starting in verse 24. Now, you recognize here they've been sent from the Pharisees. You have enough baby Bible knowledge that you know that's usually not a great thing. They're after something. They don't want someone taking their authority, taking their power. And they ask him, said to him, Why are you baptizing? If you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. The natural question that follows about who are you is what are you doing? If you're not one of these authoritative figures, how are you doing this? Why are you doing it? They're looking at this. They're not shocked by baptism, which is interesting. I know I've had some questions this week over, well, what would they have known of baptism? Because our understanding of baptism is a New Testament concept, right? But here you see it even with Old Testament prophet who is Baptizo, immersing them into the river. This idea of ritual cleansing. And for Israel, that's not unfamiliar. Maybe not exactly in our concept where someone might get baptized up here and we understand there's a symbolism. Not only that you are dying to yourself, to your sin, but you're being raised again to life, united with Christ. But even here, they're used to ritual cleansing. If you go to Israel today, you will see what they call mikvahs that they had for ritual cleansing. You go down into them and you would be cleansed as you could enter the temple, 
They don't question the idea of baptizing. They're questioning whether he has the authority to do that. And more than that, we're going to see it's the authority to do that to those who are already Jews. Because not only was it for ritual cleansing, but the other thing it was used for was those who were converting. That is, you are a Gentile, you are a pagan, you want to convert. Reject all of your religion and join Judaism. And so they are shocked that he is baptizing Jews who they would say they don't need baptizing. They've already been circumcised. They're already of Moses. You don't need to baptize them. And John's saying, no, no, no. They need to repent. They need baptism. I like what Leon Morris said in his commentary. He says, when such a conversion took place, talking of someone converting to Judaism, the males of the family were circumcised and all of both sexes were baptized. This was seen as the ceremonial removal of all the pollutions contracted in the Gentile world. The novelty in John's case and the sting in this practice was that he applied to the Jews the ceremony that was held to be appropriate in the case of Gentiles coming newly into the faith. All Jews were prepared to accept the view that Gentiles were defiled, that Gentiles needed cleansing, but to put Jews in the same class was horrifying. This idea that this would be horrifying to them that you say Jews also need to repent and be cleansed in the same way as the Gentiles. But Christ didn't just die for the Gentiles, right? He didn't die just for the Jews. Everyone, everyone needs to be cleansed. Everyone needs to be baptized not by water, but by the one who baptizes in the Spirit, as he argues in the coming passages. John's answer is not expected. Because he doesn't really say where his authority came from. And he says this in verse 26. Warning, what are you doing? He doesn't give an answer of, well, how can he do this baptizing? How, he doesn't answer. He just simply says, this is 26, by saying, I baptize with water. But among you stands one whom you do not know. As you see, his answer isn't to say, let me give you an argument. This is why I can do this. This is my authority. He simply goes, no, no, no. You think what I'm doing is radical. Uh, one is coming who has greater authority. I baptize water among you stands who you do not know. And that one, verse 27, who comes after me, of whom I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. What does he do? Basically doesn't answer their question, except for to say, deflect. You got the wrong guy. It's not me you should be asking questions of or looking to. There's one coming after me. I'm simply the voice preparing the way. And that's the one you should look to. And he says something that would be just as horrifying. To not be worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. There's a rabbinic saying that they have at least dated to 250 AD. But probably, like most sayings, is older than that. As a rabbinic saying that said, quote, Every service which a slave performs of his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal thong. It's hard for us. Like most of us are wearing shoes and sandals and probably no one's going to take them off today. And that culture, he's saying, that's the one thing that the master Disciples' relationship, disciple does not do. And he's saying, hey, I'm not even worthy to do that menial task of the slave. That's how great the one who is coming after me. I'm just a voice. The authority is in the one coming, in the message, not in the man. Recognize true authority. Authority that it says, it said, is not in the message, but that is in the message, but not the man. The reminder for all of us that we are replaceable. There's other seminary grads who can come and fill this pulpit and people who haven't gone to seminary and people here in this audience who can fill this pulpit. I'm replaceable and ultimately the nature of life is I do get replaced. That's why the scripture I think prioritizes discipleship. That you are to pass on what you learn. It's not just an individual mandate but a corporate mandate, that we're doing this together. First Timothy 2.2, 2, specifically looking at Paul, Timothy. He says, the things which you have heard from me, so what Paul has told Timothy, in the presence of many witnesses, interesting, right, back to that idea, 
were witnesses, were all witnesses, and trust these two faithful men who will be able to teach others also. If you simply communicate spiritual truth with your personality, you simply communicate spiritual truth with your presence, and not with the message, not with the truth of God, you won't be instilling true disciples. Not simply personalities, but it is the eternal word that we are to impart. It's why we preach the word even this morning. Because it is what has power and what we need to pass on. It's where the true authority lies. Well, lastly, if they're understanding that's where the true authority lies, then what role do we have? If we're always deflecting, what role do we have? Your role is to deflect by giving your story. Just the way John the Baptist here is giving his story, why he is bearing witness, we are also... Fourthly, to bear witness to what we have seen. Learn from John's witness. How do you reflect glory back to Jesus? By bearing witness to what he has done in your life. What has he done in John's life? Firstly, look at verse 28. What he's done in John's life, we're going to see that it orients us geographically where these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And what John gives testimony here, everything's building up to this, is bearing witness that God the Father told me the one where the Spirit descends and it's abiding on him, that is the Son of God. And so the next day, Jesus, uh, John the Baptist, he says, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, he proclaims, he bears witness, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he proclaims, he gives witness, that's the one. And he kind of recounts, why does he know that's the one? Because the assumption is, you have a little bit of knowledge here, that, well, he was baptized, and when he was baptized by John, we don't get the story of John saying, no, I shouldn't baptize you here. It just simply assumes, it's kind of condensing the story to say, after the baptism, he says, look, I know, why? Because when he came, and I'm not worthy of untying his sandal, when I baptized him, it was clear that he is God's son. What is the Lamb of God? The one who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom he said, After me comes a man who has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. John chapter 1. He is the word, right? The word was with God in the beginning. Even though his ministry is after John's, his existence precedes John because he is God. In fact, he even says in verse 31, and looking at John's kind of, story, his life. He's a cousin of Jesus. I'm guessing he knew Jesus, but it's to say he didn't recognize him as the Messiah till that moment at the baptism. I can't imagine he didn't think something was different about him. But he didn't recognize him fully. And that also tells you John's point is to argue for the deity of Christ, but that's a pretty powerful argument for the humanity of Christ. But his own cousin, who I think would at least see him at Passover, doesn't see anything different other than human. That's how human he is. But of course, he's not just human. He is fully God. He didn't know him, verse 31. But so that he might be manifested in Israel, I came baptizing with water. His whole purpose is, I didn't know exactly who it was going to be, but I know I existed for him to prepare Israel to see him. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he abided on him. I didn't know him, verse 33. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to him, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and abiding in him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have borne witness, conclusion of this first witness to the stand, that this is who? This is the Son of God. And the Son of God is coming to do something more than baptize you with water. If you're looking for a place, because there are some denominations who I believe get this radically wrong, Water baptism does not save you. They're distinct. It's a symbol. And even here you see it separated, that there is such a thing as spirit baptism, but it's not water baptism. It's regeneration. John chapter 3. And although I think the Lord commands us, and Lord will have some baptisms here soon with water, that we are to be baptized in obedience as a symbol of identifying with Christ, identifying with his church, you need to be firstly baptized by Christ himself in that you've been baptized into the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen this one and I bear witness to him that he is the Son of God. 
If you remember, he not only said he's the son of God, but back up to verse 30, he says he is the lamb of God. What does he bear witnessing to by saying that? This might be one of those cases where he may not fully comprehend all that this entails. Because he seems to be unexpected of even how Christ is going to suffer and to die. Even I think he's a little bit taken off when he suffers and is in prison and is ultimately martyred before the death of Christ. We just finished the book of Revelation. We saw Christ is known as the Lamb, right? The worthy one who's able to open the skull. But I think I understand this probably as a general phrase of referring back to associating the picture of a lamb used with Old Testament sacrificing and all that it entails. And even though it entails lambs being sacrificed, they seem to imagine, well, but surely he won't have to die, which I think I understand from a human aspect of it'll have to happen a different way than that. And it doesn't. It happens exactly the way as it's seen in the Old Testament that it's, Hebrew says, blood. But they know of Old Testament sacrifices, including Passover, daily temple sacrifices, burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, offerings for purification, lamb sacrifice for the feast of trumpets, tabernacles, the day of atonement. So it's probably a reference to all of that system to say he is the lamb, he is the means, he is the way in which God will take off, he will take away the sins of the world. The idea of bearing off, he's going to bear Jesus the consequences of sin, which is death, in order that its guilt might be removed and we might have a relationship with God the Father. Whether that kind of throws you off, we looked at world before, it's a big word in John. Just real quickly, go to John 11, I think, just for clarity, because we're going to get there sooner than later. But just as a way, I think it's helpful to you, the way John's using it. Because this isn't universal, but it is a universal message. In 1151, looking at Caiaphas, who prophesies better than he knows. <laughs> Look at just verse 51. His prophecy is that which, he's trying to kill Jesus. So this is, this is not a good guy. But he, he does understand that One man is going to die for the nation. And verse 51 clarifies that now, that's Caiaphas, did not say this from himself, but being high priest. That year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And then he clarifies, not just for the nation only, but in order that he might be also gathered together into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. That is to say, the world. Not just the Jews but the Gentiles, the world. That's who he is going to die for. But it isn't to say it's universalism. It's just saying this message is for everyone. He's the lamb for, not just the Jews, but for everyone. That's the witness that John is bearing. And not only is there this negative assumption of water baptism here at the end, but of course the positive that you will be baptized in the Spirit. That's John's testimony. And Here's the bottom line as we think about this, that we as well have a testimony. If you've come here this morning or you've been baptized, you've had to write or communicate to others, there is a time when you didn't know Christ. And then there became a time where you met him. Someone shared the gospel, the truth of his life and his death and his resurrection with you. Who the man is or said, read the gospel of John for yourself. And you have a testimony of you met him and how it changed you. You recognized him as... The Son of God. Verse 34, the same thing John sees him for at that moment. And of course, if you have testimony, it shouldn't be just before how you met Christ, but also after how it has changed your life. And then the question comes, John's bearing witness. He's telling others, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And likewise, it's a call towards us. You don't have to go to the end of... Matthew, to, to see the Great Commission in Matthew 28. But it is the same call that we are to be witnesses of what God has done for us. And it can be very effective for evangelism. Yes, you're going to have to give the content of the gospel. And you want to study more of that. We, we have a class for that. What is the gospel? And that's not just for those who are 
unbelievers, but even for us as believers, having an understanding of what God has done and even finding confidence and joy in what Christ has done for us. I remember I lived with a man who was an elder at the church that I attended during seminary, and we had baptisms, a large church, baptisms on Sundays, and he's a fairly still guy, not a super emotional guy, uh, kind of a guy, mechanic, wants to work with his hands. I remember the first Sunday we was, I was there, and the first time I saw the baptisms, I'm looking over, and I've got a 50-year-old man who I view as a very stoic, non-emotional guy. And here are these people giving testimonies, and the guy's weeping because he understands what it is that Christ has saved not only them from, but what Christ has saved him from. It's always an amazing thing. We're giving witness to what Christ has done for each one of us, and it calls us back to the conclusion of 34 that he is the Son of God. Well, how do we deflect that? How do we give true witness? Understand who you're not, understand who you are, understand true authority, but you've got to go out and you've got to bear witness. We're each called a similar ministry. Now, how similar? You're not John the Baptist. You're not the greatest Old Testament prophet, sorry. But also, good news, you don't have to wear camel's hair or eat locust and honey. But let me end with this as a reminder. This is an amazing statement because this goes along with what we saw earlier in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this, the greatest Old Testament prophet. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven, that includes you, includes me, is greater than he. That's a pretty powerful statement. Why? Because we have been baptized in the Spirit if you have confessed your sin and turned to Christ. And you, even then, have experienced something John did not experience. He died before Jesus died before the beginning of the church, the last Old Testament prophet. He was still looking forward, and yet we have experienced what he longed for. It's a great reminder to walk worthy of such a great calling and walk in the light of such a privilege to be a witness for the truth of Christ to the world. And really, take your place in a long line, not of just the seven witnesses as described in John, but a long line of witnesses throughout the church through all ages. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Even the time that we have to look towards how you used John to see his uniqueness, to see his humility, and in many ways from a human perspective to see his greatness and yet understand that that is not how he viewed himself. And if he is humble after being so blessed, how much more should we be humble with the gifts you have given us? May we also not be humble and to say that we have nothing. We have something greater than John had. And in light of that, may we recognize we have the same priority to go out into the world and to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We ask in your son's name. Amen.